Well, we're happy to have David Johnson again with us today and look forward to what he has to share. We didn't get a, a female pastor out of Deborah and Barak, so we'll, we'll see what he, what he comes with up out of Ruth. One of the, I think one of the nicest stories in the Bible is there's all kinds of great truth there. David, look forward to what you have for us. You know, I thank you, George, for your pastoral prayer and for all of those who um, do all the things that matter in the church and the leadership. Um, I have to say, though, I've got some house cleaning things to take care of. Um, twice now, since last Sunday, I've had people ask me, well, what about this rainstorm that you were talking about in the book of Judges? I'm looking at chapter 4, and there's no storm in chapter 4. So where did those 900 chariots get stuck in the mud when there's, where's that story? Ah, I alluded to chapter 5. We just didn't go there. So I drew and I made the comment from chapter 5 that a rainstorm in the Song of Deborah had emerged, a thunderstorm. Uh, it's called the Torrents, and the river Kishon was flooded, and that is what we understand that to be the case. In other words, I'll leave things alone, so you've got to ask those questions. Wait a minute, where is that? And then all of a sudden, maybe there's another opportunity where you can look at it and, uh, and come to that. So anyway, leaving some things out is not always the best idea, but I reference it, but not sufficient enough because two people asked me that question. I've kind of realized that there's a moment in your Bible study that it's not what you heard that may be the thing that captures your attention, but the thing that wasn't said that you're looking at, it's the question that you have that starts to probe your thinking, and then you kind of, we would say, think on the question, and in the course of that activity, God may reveal something to you. I remember when I was uh, a new student of the Bible, as I've told you before, I did not grow up reading it, I did not grow up in church, so my grandparents would ask me to go to church. Church, very, The auditorium had a center aisle, but it was very similar to this one. And I would sit with my grandparents, unchurched, uninterested, and I was drawing football plays on the bulletin. So every time I look up and I see white space, I remember me drawing football plays on white space. Um, later, I remember the pastor was talking, and I suddenly my ears perked up. Because I felt like he was talking to me. Now, when you're in a small church, and you're one of the youngest people in the church, which is what I was, and the, and the pastor's looking at you, he probably has no interest in looking at you. He just looks by you, but you take it personal. And I can remember it finally waking up going, he's saying something to me. Well, I have since come to believe that what was actually happening, the Holy Spirit was convicting me about what he was saying, and I was listening for the first time. But there was another thing that was happening besides the football plays while I was in church is I would try to read my Bible. I thought, well, I'll start at the beginning. And I started in Genesis. I was doing pretty good until I got to chapter 5. And when I got to the table of nations, I said, okay, I'm out. Well, how's it end? I got to Revelation, and I started looking through Revelation, and I was fine up until I got to chapter 5 or 6. And I started reading about the seals, and then I got nervous. Who are these four horsemen? And I, so I quit, and I jumped to the middle, and I got to Ezekiel, and I found the opening of Ezekiel with the wheels and the angels, and there's two angels. And I went, who can understand this book? So I really got lost in it, and then I figured out there's a, there's a, a way to read it, and I started doing that. And then I got to one particular story. I was probably a second year as a believer, and there was this phrase that I was reading in Second Kings and it was about upon whose hand the king leaned. And that phrase, as odd as it sounds, stuck in my head. And I read a little further in the story, and it said it again. Well, it just so happened that this one phrase stuck in my mind. What does that mean? Why did he write that? And I kept looking at that. I went to friends of mine who were seminary students, and I would ask them. And they would look at me like, David, just don't worry about it. But it's stuck in my mind. So I've, I've come to the conclusion that there are certain things that we probably are okay to say, why does it say that? What does that mean? And it's less the answer that we get that we learn from and sometimes more the question that 
is just that. When we think about our life, going on some journey, we are on a quest for something. And there's a history of this idea with people's personal growth. There's three verbs. You yearn, you learn, and you return. And that's a major theme in most all of the the growth that we see from your teenage years until your adult years is there's something you're trying to solve, a problem, a quest. Well, what if you would think then as the question is, I have a question that's taking me into an understanding of truth. Does that make sense? Simple enough. Most of you have probably said, okay, enough of the questions. Let's just get to the answers, right? Uh, I remember being a student in the back of the book. Every other, it was, I think of the odd numbers, the answers were in the math book. So you would have to answer, the teacher would assign only the even-numbered questions because they knew we could cheat in the back. So uh, I was always looking for the answer. What's the answer? Well, I've learned more valuable is the question. There's another thing I want to mention about uh, last week that I won't continue to labor on. And that is, is this question about if you know for certain, if you know for certain the outcome, why would you doubt? That uncertainty of denying what God has said. If you know the outcome is certain, then why wouldn't you go forward aggressively? That's the question I was trying to raise last week with Barack. It reminded me later that uh, there was a moment my father who was a cook in our home, but he was the messiest cook. And when he cooked in the kitchen, I never wanted to follow him by cleaning up after him because he just made the biggest mess. It really impacted me because when I started cooking, I would clean up as I went. How many of you make a big mess and then you come back later and clean it up? Okay, I see people that probably go along the way. But I remember one time my father was going to cook, and I went, oh, this is great. We'll eat. This will be good. And he leaned over to me after dinner. He said, hey, David, I need you. I'll pay you $5 to clean up the kitchen. And I sat there for a moment, and I went, no, nah, that's all right. <laughs> I was a middle school boy. Five bucks should have been enough to motivate me to clean up after my, my father. However, I knew that the time that I would take to clean it up, I was worth more per hour than I was the $5. So I did the math quickly, and I said, no, that's okay. A few minutes were gone by. There was nothing said by my father. We were watching television. He looks over at me and says, David, you need to go clean up the kitchen. And I looked at him. I went, are you serious? He goes, yeah. Well, do I get the $5? He goes, oh, no, you missed that chance already. Oh, I get it. So if the outcome is certain, which was me cleaning up after my father, that was going to happen, it's how we approach life with the outcome being certain. Uh, Take the $5, kids. I'm just telling you right now. Don't do what I did. Well, today, as we look at another story, another couple in the book of Ruth, so if you'll turn there, chapter 2, I want us to look at this story in a reverse order of last week's couple. Because where the story took place last week was a commander named Sisera, whose ending would come at the hand of a woman. So there's a couplet there. We see Sisera, the commander of the 900 chariots, and we see a woman with one hammer and a tent peg, and he meets his end. But inside of that, we have another couple, which we know to be Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, and Barak. Now, we don't know his family's story, but we know they named him Lightning. So there's another couple within those two, and that their relationship, she goes with him up, and then he comes down alone, and he ended up doing exactly what he was supposed to do. And the ending was just as God had promised. So the ending is going to be certain, but how it's going to unfold is not. And the unaddressed story of the thunderstorm is the unexpected contribution that God made that they could never accounted for. So it's an unexpected result. Today, the story is just the opposite. There's no war. There are, again, two men and two women in the story that we'll look at. But there's, instead of war and death and 
this gruesomeness of Jael's behavior in ending Sisera's control, you have peace. Now, it's been a dreadful time because both these stories take place during the time of Judges. As you heard George in his prayer for the country, when there's this general sense that the country has lost its way, the real challenge for any of us is to recognize that is an overarching reality, but we know within that overarching reality that there are enormous stories of people being faithful, who read their Bibles, who are seeking to do what God has called them to. They're honoring the Lord. You may feel as if somehow you're alone in this, but your, your presence here is evidence that you're countercultural. You could be anywhere today. And it's not just anywhere, but you're attending a church and a fellowship that is committed to God's word cares about doing what God has revealed and responding in faith. That's so countercultural. It shouldn't be, but it is. And it's always been like that. And can I say it? It will always be like that. That's the way it was in Judges. It appears that everything is ruined. And for hundreds of years, that was the example. But you know what? There are stories embedded in our Bible as reminders to us to be faithful in our place and in our time with those around us. We don't have to fight a war with chariots or 10,000 or any of the other things. How about we have to recognize the faithfulness that happens to us in the moments of peace? And what we see in this story is not a conflict of war but literally the aftermath of a 10-year exile where one single woman comes back when the famine is over and it's harvest time. It's Naomi. She left full, she would say, but God has dealt bitterly with me and I've come back empty. Except there was one person who came with her. Her daughter-in-law, Ruth. The book is named after the daughter-in-law, a Moabite. Her name itself was scandalous because the Moabites were not considered to be noble people by the Jews. They were the result of Lot's incestuous relationship with his own daughter. And the word literally means Mo, which is from, Ab, which means father. My son is from my dad. That's how they came into being. The Ammonites were also in the same story, just like the Moabites. So all those peoples to the east of the Jordan River had been the antagonist to Israel. But when it came down to it, Elimelech and his two sons and their their mom, they all go east and they cross the river and they went into Moab. And now the famine, ten years later, is over and they come back. That's chapter one of Ruth. Can you believe I went so fast? Shocking, I know. So when we get to this story, I want us to make sure that we see two major themes. The big picture of the Abrahamic covenant, which I will not ask us to turn there. But if you will consider at some point going back to Genesis chapter 15, after God had called Abraham, he promised him a son from his own body And as many as there are the stars, so there would be his descendants. And the Abrahamic covenant is now dependent upon every generation having a child. And from that seed of Abraham will come ultimately, Galatians chapter 3, the seed that is Christ. So from the Abrahamic promise, through the families comes Jesus, the Savior of the world. But there's this one moment in world history, that promise to Abraham and that fulfillment in Jesus hangs in the balance and everything is lost. And guess who knows it? No one in this story knows the weight of that. Can you imagine that God would offer a promise so dependent on human relationships? 
That's what he did. And when the model of this Elimelech is supposed to now have a son who's going to have a son who's going to have a son, but all of a sudden Elimelech is dead and Malon is dead and Killian is dead, there is no successor. Zero. There is no successor. And then you're left with two women, one of whom is barren. She's too old. She says it in her own testimony in chapter 1. And then you have a Moabitess who's widowed and going to be unaccepted by Jewish people. And rather than stay home and have her own husband and children, she goes and pledges herself to Naomi and she goes forward without any certainty whatsoever in her life. Zero. No hope. The question is, why is God going to allow the vulnerability of his promise to Abraham to be so incredibly jeopardized with this tragic story in chapter 1? Well, we know the story, as it turns out, Boaz and Ruth, they meet, and we're going to look at that meeting because it's phenomenal. And the end result is chapter 4. So if you look at the book of Ruth, chapter 1 is death, and chapter 4 is life. So you can think of these four chapters as a beautiful literary arrangement to show that it begins with tragedy in the classic sense. And it ends with comedy, not in the funny kind, but the redemptive kind. That God has redeemed his people from the fall. The death of Elimelech, Malon, and Kilian. But these two chapters down the middle, actually if you were to look at them, which we will do, but if I could show them on the board, which I've done, and I would love to sometime, but not today. If you were to look at these two chapters, two and three, both of whom, oh, excuse me, both of which focus on Boaz, who's introduced to us in chapter two, verse one, and we see him again in chapter three, verse uh, three, four. But both of them follow the exact same pattern of behavior in terms of the way it opens up. There's a conversation, and I'll show you in just a moment. There's a conversation between Naomi and Ruth. In chapter 2, chapter 2 ends with a, tell me how your day went, honey. <laughs> chapter 3 opens, conversation between Naomi and Ruth. Guess how chapter 3 closes? Tell me how your night went, honey. By the way, that was not a mistake. Chapter 2 is in the daylight. Chapter 3 is in the dark. It reminds me of this amazing idea that if you look at the Bible in light of its context, but also the conditions at the time of the story, you'll see the same thing in the book of John. If I look in chapter 2, where the wedding at Cana takes place, it's Jesus and his mother. Remember? Woman is not, what have I have to do with this? And then she says, do whatever he says. But by the time you get to end of chapter 2, it's Jesus in the temple, and what is he dealing with? His father's house. Note the contrast. One chapter, his mother and his father. And the idea of his mother, the wine symbolizes his death. By the time you get to the father, he's describing if you, if you destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. He's describing his resurrection. So you have in chapter 2 two themes, his death as it pertains to his material life, his earthly life, his mother, and his resurrection as it pertains to his father. So in one chapter, we see this, the message literally of the gospel, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you get to chapter 3, he's interviewed by a rabbi named Nicodemus. When does it take place? At night. Ah, interesting. At night. How about chapter 4? There's an interview with a woman at the well. And when does that interview take place? At the midday, at the night, at what we would call the sixth hour. It's speculated that's 12 o'clock. We don't know for certain, but we could go with that and it's fine. But notice the literary contrast. That's what I'm getting at. 
So if we get comfortable with these ideas, we're seeing that the way in which the writer, as we know John specifically had done, he specifically told stories in order for us to know two things. Number one, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and number two, by believing in him, we would have eternal life. So the arrangements of the stories are telling us something theologically. It's intentional. And I want to say the same thing is also true in this beautiful piece of literature called Ruth, that down the middle, the story unfolds the same way. Chapter 2, he shows up, he greets everyone, he says, hey, who's, who is this in the field? He recognizes an unknown person, a newbie, who's just come to glean. I'll get into the details in just a moment. At night, he's asleep on the grain, because he's protecting his bounty, God's blessing, and he wakes up in the middle of the night, and there's a woman at his feet, and he goes, oh, who is this? It's the same idea. There's a response of the servant in chapter 2. There's the response of the woman in chapter 3. And then he decides to take action in chapter 2 by making sure that she's taken care of and giving her grain in chapter 3. He says, hey, lie here until morning. Don't let it be known that a woman was seen on the threshing floor. He's got his own integrity to maintain. And what does he do at the end? He gives her grain, and she goes home and tells her mother-in-law, how was the night? So the question is, how do we look at these two chapters together in light of chapter one is about death and the other is about life? What I want to propose, if I can say this, add to this bigger salvation arc from the promise of Abraham to the birth of Jesus, these two chapters, and this is my entire intent, if I've missed this, you got to call me out. All of salvation history depends on this story. What happens in these two chapters preserves Abraham's promise that God had made and the, the, the birth of Jesus that had been foretold and secured because of what these people did in only two chapters. That's how important is this story. It's an amazing thing to consider that all that God has promised depends on these people and what they did. Here's what I want to propose. Don't think of this only as their story. Here's the, here's the thing that's most important. And I want, I I want to reach out and, um, and grab you with encouragement and say, this is you. This is you. In every position in society, this is you. If you're looking for what fits, you fit in the pages of this story if you know that God has promised that if you do the faithful things, he will bless you. And I'm not into prosperity gospel. I'm just telling you straight. You can trust God in faith to do things you cannot expect. Here's what we typically do. We make these stories, as rightly so, these tremendous testimonies of God's grace. And we look for some application... And what I want to say in the simplest way possible is the theology of this book, particular Ruth, this theology is God is unchanged. Human nature is unchanged. The dynamics of God revealing himself in a book called our Bible or our life that he specifically called us to and then given us the Holy Spirit to inspire and to illumine and to maintain his presence in our life and to enable us to obey him. It means that the things that we do in response to God's revelation is worship and faith. It takes us there. I want you to consider now the accidental ideas that seem to come into this story. Are we okay with this? So far so good? By the way, I've actually gone through chapter 2 and 3 already. I already told you about chapter 1. I alluded to chapter 4. 
But now let's get to the specifics. How's that? Chapter 2, verse 1. By the way, my phone and my watch are over there. They will not interrupt the service this week. I'm making progress. Thank you very much. <laughs> I left it over there, turned it off, the whole thing. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabitess. By the way, in chapter 1, she's always referred to Ruth, but the time she comes into Israel, she's now in Bethlehem, she's called Ruth the Moabitess. She's stigmatized every time you see that word. The conflict is intended to be heightened by the foreigner has come into a land where she's not welcomed. So there's the man of great honor and wealth, Boaz, and now we've got Ruth the Moabitess. You see the contrast is intentional with the title. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, this is how she began her day. So notice Ruth takes the initiative. Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she sought permission to go glean. By the way, most of you will know the story in Israel, you had a field. The field belonged to you, but the grain and its bounty belonged to the Lord. He gave you the, the top of the, the stalk of grain. We were driving in, and we see the sorghum coming up. We called it something else when I was growing up, and it's starting to come up. And I know in the fall, they'll cut that and make bird seed out of it and all the other stuff they do with sorghum or, or uh, maize or milo. We, we called it any number of things. But if... Anything fell and hit the ground, it, you couldn't pick it up. So you had two passes in the field. You got the pass with your reapers, and then you had to leave anything that hit the ground alone. And then you were, by the law, the Mosaic law, required to open up the field. You leave the corners alone. You open up the field, and the poor and the exiles could come in and glean, which meant they bent all the way down to the ground, and gathered what remained, and that was God's economy of taking care of those who didn't have a field and didn't have a job. Boaz had the field. His workers had a job. Naomi and Ruth had nothing. And because Ruth, the Moabitess, was a foreigner, and she was an exiled, unclean woman because she was Moabitess, you would think that she didn't have anything. She didn't. But Boaz opened up the field. He obeyed God. So now she knows at least her right as a woman, as a foreigner, to be able to come in and glean. So she departed, verse 3, and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. This is phase one, the reapers, phase two, the gleaners. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. I want you to highlight, if you don't mind, the word in verse 3, she happened to come to the portion of the field. Now, I remember being a sophomore in high school at Community High School outside of Nevada. Take 205, it dead ends into 78, hang a right, and there's Levon. Keep on going and you'll see Highway 6, little country school, graduated with 30 people. And I can remember being in Coach Largent. That was my football coach, my baseball coach. And I'm in Coach Largent. Are you ready for this? My coach did not coach history. Most coaches seem to have coached history or math. My coach coached English. I think he's the only football coach in the history of community high school that coached English. And I remember sitting in his class and I'm sitting in the English class, and he said something about fate. And he was explaining fate. And I, I couldn't quite understand, because I know fate is a town somewhere outside of Rockwell. And I'm thinking the town, he, he's explaining this idea that life has this element to it attached to fate. And he described it this way. I'll never forget it. He described it this way as you could pull out of the school parking lot and so time your exit that you could get hit by a car, and that's called fate. And I remember thinking, that was a terrible decision to leave at that moment and not pay attention, but the, we, we, we're country boys, so we just flew up and down those country roads. And um, as it turns out, a 
couple of years later, my senior English teacher, Keith, pulled out of Highway 6 onto 78 and got broadsided and killed in a car wreck. And the idea of fate came back to me. How many times have you about to pull out of your neighborhood or your driveway and just at the time there's nobody else around, a car passes you by and keeps you from pulling out? I always ask, what are the chances that that's going to happen? And I always say to my wife, 100%. It always seems to happen. How many times have you looked up and you didn't pay any attention to the moment that something happened? You thought nothing of it. You were just going about your day. You were hungry. And you made a series of choices. And then suddenly... Something came from that which is unexpected. The uncertainty of our day means we are making decisions all along, and we look up, and we end up in a place we could never have imagined. She happened onto the field of Boaz. Hang on to that. Now, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, I love this businessman, the way he treats his employees, may the Lord be with you. And they said to him, may the Lord bless you. In the middle of the times in which everyone did what was right in their own eyes, there was moral chaos. Here's a Christian business, well, Christian, no, but a believing businessman who is modeling the blessing of an employer and the blessing of working for him. In the name of God, they bless each other. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant in charge of the reapers answered and said, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. Quick bio, quick resume. She's Moabite. She came back with Naomi, whom we know, and she's from Moab, just to hammer away at the idea of who she is and where she's from. And she said, now he's going to quote what she said when she got there that morning. Please let me glean and gather among the reapers, among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Well, Boaz then approaches her. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. So he has the workers, the reapers, he has someone in charge of the reapers, then he has a whole other group of people who are the maids. So now he's got a collection of people that are working at his field. What's interesting to me about this, and I hope you'll see this, is that Boaz does not recognize the social or the racial stigma attached to her being a Moabite. He ensures and protects her by saying, don't go anywhere else. You stay in my field. So if you've ever wondered about what kind of man you want to become, may I just offer up, there are so many great, wonderful examples in the Bible. Boaz should be on your list of men to study. And if I could say to the younger men in the, uh, in the room, if you're looking for what kind of man you want to be, and you may have this in your father or your grandfather, but if you want to study a man, This guy right here is worthy of your study. How does he treat people? How does he treat his workers? How does he treat people that work for him? How does he treat the the strangers in his midst? He's gracious. If you're a woman and you're trying to figure out what kind of man you want to marry, beyond your father's model or your grandfather's model or your uncle or other people like that, this is a pretty good example. What do you learn about how a man treats a woman is a great example in this story. He protects her. He provides for her. He knows that the world is rough. And what is he doing? He's putting up boundaries around her not to keep her out, but to keep others out so that she is safe. So you see this really human interaction that's demonstrating a whole other series of things that are true about human relationships that God honors. What's driving Boaz in his relationship to Ruth is the same thing that drove Boaz in relationship to his field. Go back. For a number of years, there has been a drought. The drought is over. 
there's a bounty. I don't know about you, but if you've been through some economic hard times, there's a chance that you've probably spent through some version of your savings. Maybe use more of your credit cards than you should have. And all of a sudden, you get new employment. What's the first thing you start thinking about? I want to go back and replenish my savings. Or I want to kind of buy down. I hear people say sometimes when they get they're, they're, they're financing their life or any transition, they're financing on their credit card. Now they want to go back and, and, and pay that back. And what does Boaz do? Rather than holding on to his wealth, he's given it away. So think in terms of now the economics of this story. So he's taking care of Ruth. And then he goes on to say this, verse 9. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap. And go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. I think there's any number of things we could draw from that particular statement. But a woman from another country, even in Israel, was vulnerable to how they would be treated. It's a painful story to read, but if we were to go back just a couple of chapters at the end of Judges, there is a concubine who shows up. She's unnamed. But the way in which she's treated by the men of the city is so wicked. It's, it's shocking. She is literally, well, I'll just, I'll just tell you to go back and, and read it. By contrast, to see this story and what Boaz does in protecting Ruth's physical condition. Do not touch her. When you're thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Most of the time it was women who brought the water. Now it's reversed. The servants would have been his men, and now he's letting a woman draw. You see the contrast in John chapter 4 where it's give me a drink, Jesus says, and what does the woman at the well do? She was there to draw the water. So you see this dynamic even present here. Verse 10. This is a shock. Have you ever, have you ever received something you didn't feel like you deserved? Have you ever had someone be so gracious to you for reasons that you can't explain? For you to be treated as you hoped? Have you ever expected someone to, to be rough or hard? There's so much uncertainty about the way anyone can be treated. And all of a sudden they open up their world and they provide you with this immense gift of safety and provision. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. I know an El Salvadorian refugee who fled through first Puerto Rico, becoming identified as a Puerto Rican citizen. He's a teenager. His name is Franklin. He didn't grow up in El Salvador with that name, but he was given that name. And as it turns out, he fled through Mexico and got to the border of Texas and they wouldn't let him in because he was an immigrant. And then somebody read, wait, you're from Puerto Rico. You get to come on in. So he came in. He joined a gang called M13. This is a gang that kills people. And Franklin became a bad dude. And he ended up going to Sherman. And there was a house in Sherman that a family owned and they had this house, but they didn't live in it. And Franklin broke into the house and became a squatter. And the family came to their home one day, and they discovered it had been broken in, and Franklin had taken up residence. An M13 gang member who had migrated from El Salvador who killed people. He was a teenager. And this Christian family discovered Franklin, discovered the situation with which he was dealing, and they took him in and provided for him and started taking care of him, gave him a place to live. Now, I don't know about you. I could tell you what I would first think. Number one, I don't want my wife and kids around Franklin. And for good reason. Oh, he was also training to be a UFC fighter, which means now not only does he kill people, part of M13, he can also beat me up a lot of different ways. Franklin started attending church with his family. He was exposed to the first time the gospel of Jesus. He wasn't certain about 
whether he would be accepted. But eventually, Franklin came to faith. He came to faith, and now the door of the church is open, and all the families in the church embrace Franklin. And all Franklin can think about is, when will they turn on me? Because that's the way I live. He took advantage of people. He stole from people. He did all kinds of things in the drug world. And now his life is transformed, and people are welcoming him into the family. Now, you know what Franklin's thinking? Do I deserve any of this? And the answer is no, you don't. You deserve jail or prison or something. I've gotten to know Franklin. And one day we were standing face-to-face in a room with another gentleman who had come out of another gang world. So we have Franklin, the El Salvadorian. There's this other gentleman who grew up in a totally different part of the world. And you've got Anglo David, the maximum Caucasian. I am 86% Irish and, and uh, Scottish. And I'm looking at this world of differences and all these guys, and we have one thing in common, Jesus Christ. And we stood there talking about how we, in the name of Jesus, are the same. We're brothers. And we're just rejoicing in this conversation. And we're all overwhelmed by it. Have you ever been there? I hope when you've seen how good God is and what you receive by grace, you do exactly what Ruth does in verse 10. Look at this. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Have you ever seen a better picture of grace than a woman who is expecting to be mistreated, has no rights, and she walks into a place she happened on to, and she discovers this man, Boaz, who now takes care of her, provides for her, secures her, encourages her, and she's overwhelmed by it. I'm sure when you realize that Jesus Christ, who knows everything about you, forgives you of all the sin that you have taken inventory of and all the things you think, I'm sure you for a moment say, I don't know if I can trust that. And the answer is, oh, yes, you can. Then the sense of overwhelming joy is it's too good to be true. But it is true. That's what Ruth is responding to. I remember, as, like I said, I didn't grow up churched. I didn't know my Bible. And it was almost like Kenneth Taylor, who had created back in the, the day, the 50s, created the Living Bible, the first paraphrase. Very controversial. The King James people got upset because he took the King James language and made it common day. We all have these versions now. And somebody asked Kenneth Taylor, what was it like to, to, um, to translate or to create this paraphrase? And he said, it feels like the electricity is on and I'm wiring the house. It's going off in my hands all the time. And I feel the same way when I was reading my Bible for the first time and I get to Romans chapter 7 and I read The thing I shouldn't do, I do. The things that I should do, I don't. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God in Jesus Christ. And I remember reading that the first time going, this book is so real. It tells the truth. That's what I'm struggling with. Or the time that he knows my thoughts from afar, even before I formed them, Psalm 139. He knows everything I'm thinking. Then he says at the end, search me, O God. As if he doesn't know me, he knows me. And for a moment, as you know from the book of John again, chapter 4 again, the Samaritan woman again, the woman at the well, he says, come meet this man who's told me everything I've ever done. I got news for you. I'm not going. I'm not interested in meeting a man who knows everything I've ever done unless I'm covering it up, which I was. Now I'm not. I deal with my father this way. I can come to him. And what does he do with me? He forgives me. 
So this grace that is exhibited by Boaz is appreciated in verse 10 by Ruth, and she's overwhelmed, and she falls to the ground. And Boaz answered and said to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people they did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages. Be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. She is so conscious of how she looks in the social mirror. She is aware. We would call it today, she's self-aware that she doesn't add up. She has walked into the room like many of you may have done, and immediately you feel the eyes fall on you. They gaze upon you, and you feel almost immediately the judgment of the room. How many of you have looked in that social mirror and imagined what others think of you? It's clear here. She's walked into the field, and she's had a sense of the gaze that has fallen on her and how people feel about her. She goes, I'm not like your maidservants. But Boaz, irrespective of her race, irrespective of her condition, has treated her like one. That's the shock of this story. Everyone to Boaz is the same, worthy of protection, worthy of his responsibility as a farmer to take care of those people in his field. They're all the same. So that's how it goes, but it doesn't stop there. Verse 14, And at mealtime Boaz said to her, Come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread into the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, sitting at the table with people of a higher class than she was. She has a seat at the table. And he served her roasted grain. And she ate and was satisfied and had some left. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like the Gospels? When they brought to Jesus five loaves and two fish, and he had everyone sit down, and he blessed it, and he passed it out, and they ate, and they were satisfied, and there were leftovers? There were two of these feeding miracles. The first, there was 12 baskets left. And the second, there were seven baskets left. Such was the bounty. By the way, they're on a boat later, and Jesus says to the disciples, Hey, do you remember that first feeding miracle, how many baskets were left? And they said, Twelve. And after the second one, how many were left? And they said, Seven. Do you not understand? And that's how the story ends, and then it moves on to the next story. It's like, Wait, Jesus, what was the question? What's the point of the seven and the twelve? You'll have to look that one up. I will do that again some other time. Remember the questions I've been leaving? Keith, you're paying attention. I really appreciate that. Keith is the one who said, where's that storm come from? I like that. I like that a lot. Um, But I love this story is this bounty that he doesn't stop there. Verse 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not insult her. And also you shall purposefully pull out of her or out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. You know what he's telling his reapers? Reach in the bag that you just filled up by your own work and dump some on the ground. It doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to her. That's how far he's going to take care of Ruth. Ah, but there's someone else in the story that he's also considering. Who else is he considering? Naomi. He is focused on another widow. And his, his, his gaze is at Ruth, but his mind is to also Naomi because there are two widows in the story. You get to the book of James. What is true religion? That you visit the orphans and the widows in their distress. God has always been focused on the widows and the orphans, the people who trust him because they've got nothing else. And you can see it starting to emerge here in Boaz's life. So 
She gleaned in the field until evening, verse 17. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. So the barley harvest is coming to an end. And she took it up and went into the city. The day is over, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. And her mother-in-law then said to her, Where did you glean today, and where did you work? These conversations, when my wife and I started dating, we would go out on a date, we would come back to the house, and immediately she would disappear. I would sit on the couch and watch television, the news typically, and she would go back into the back room, and that's where her mother was, and she would sit there and tell her mother about our date, I assumed. And I realized that it's this pattern that some people, children, have with their parents, some people have it. How was your day? I want to hear all about it. If you were to ask me that question, I'd go, it's okay. There's a lot in a few words with me, right? Guys are that way, I think, right? We just cut right to it. How was your day? It was good. You want to tell me about it? Sure. <laughs> you know, we're asking somebody to draw it out of us. And I feel like the same thing happens here with Naomi and Ruth. But here's the other part that we get to see, is we get to see what it meant to them. I think there's something fascinating, and I need to do a better job of it even now, is there something amazing when someone asks you, how was your day, they actually do care about you. And what I need to do a better job of is also care enough about, in particular, my wife to say, well, let me tell you, because you did ask me. Now, I still leave out the details. Aren't you glad, guys, that we do leave out the details? That's what guys are. Guys sit around, have very few conversations, and just play games. And that's, that's enough. We don't need to talk. We just gruff. We just grunt and make noises. And we're okay with that. Now some, guys, now, some guys, like me, talk a lot. But I don't always do this sort of thing. But here's what she gets to do is tell the story of God's grace. Now you do want to share. Because what Naomi is asking is where your physical needs being met, but there's something else being met. And that is this broken story is we're starting to see it get knit together in God's providential care where people who don't know the full story are just living their life. And they're taking care of basic needs. And it just happens to be that she went to the field of Boaz. And all this goodness that flowed out of him, all this favor which was overwhelming to her, and she now gets to tell the story to Naomi, whose life has been bitter. And she gets to hear what God is doing through the story of Ruth. Can I tell you something? And I hope you don't miss this. God is doing something in your life. Do you believe that? Does he reveal his plans to you? In some cases, he might. But in most cases, the answer is no. You know the destiny is set. If you've believed in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. You know how it's going to be. You will be with him. But what about the meantime? As a new believer, I sat down with one of my favorite mentors, Dr. Johnson, unrelated. And I asked him, how is it? I don't, I'm struggling with what God's will for my life is and the choices I'm about to make. I was trying a business major, which I was. I was looking at seminary, which was a growing desire of mine to become a teacher, which was embarrassing to me that I would even be able to do that. And I was slated to go into the military to be a fighter pilot, and I had a date that I had to show up at. It's a long story. I had to make a decision at this fork road, and I went to seek Dr. Johnson's counsel. And I looked at Dr. Johnson essentially saying... You are a man I respect. You know your Bible. Can you tell me what decision I need to make? And Dr. Johnson said, I can't tell you that. Then how am I to know? He said, what do you want to do? And I said, that's the problem. I'm trying to get rid of my wants. He goes, oh, no, no. You've been created by God, and he's, he's given you desire to please him. And when you do that, you'll feel it. Later, the movie Chariots of Fire would capture that. God made me fast for a reason, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. My weak attempt at a Scottish accent. You'll know it, is what Dr. Johnson was saying to me. And then he said something that I think we can appreciate. He said, those of us who've lived longer with the Lord, 
learn to hear his voice sooner. And that hit me as very comforting if you're older. (laughs) And it's not so comforting when you're like me at the time in your 20s trying to sort out God's will for your life. But here's where I'm going with this. Boaz is focused on obeying God. Ruth is focused on getting food to take care of her mother-in-law. Naomi wants to hear the report, how it went. An average day in the life of people with no certainty of the future. Little did they know that the promise made to Abraham is dependent on their behavior in this story that would lead to Jesus Christ. That's how heavy this apparent conversation goes. Isn't that amazing to consider how simple it is, how important it is? Well, let's look at the conversation and we'll be on. Um, well, she says at the end of chapter, uh, verse 19, excuse me, and she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and then said, the name of the man with whom I worked today is Boaz. And that name rang in Naomi's ear. She responded, verse 20, to the daughter-in-law, may he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, the man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Then Ruth and Naomi, again, notice, the Moabitess, there's the tricky, yeah, it's Naomi's relative, but not yours. That's the focus of this transition from 21, uh, 20 to 21. Furthermore, he said to me, you shall stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, his, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids, lest others fall upon you in another field. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. It's an amazing story. By the way, I left my watch over on the counter. I left my phone over on the counter. I do not want to interrupt, but I do have this nagging, where is the clock in this building? Do we know what time it is? Can somebody tell me? Is, is it noon? Is it really? Wow, I better, I better wrap up. Okay, everybody perk up now because we're going to go fast. All right, you ready? I've already told you about chapter three. Here's how it goes. We're going to cut right to it. All right. In the daytime in chapter two, Naomi cares now about Ruth in chapter three. And you know what she wants Ruth to do? Is Naomi's concern is Ruth having a husband. So what she wants is to provide for Naomi. And she counsels Ruth to go to the threshing floor, which is where the farmers protected their grain. Remember, there had been a famine, and you laid with your grain so no one would steal it. But there was another thing that happened on the threshing floor that's not for mixed company, and that is, is the women would show up for other reasons And they would honor the fertility gods in that particular environment. And it was not good for a woman to be on the threshing floor. And it would jeopardize and compromise Boaz's testimony if anyone approached him. But in the middle of the night, she's uncovered his feet. He gets cold, reaches down to recover his feet. And there she is. And she says, essentially, will you marry me? I'm cutting right to the chase. Are y'all proud of me? I'm getting there fast. And you know what ends up happening? He says, listen, you're right. I'm a close relative, but there's someone else closer than me. And you know what? I'll redeem you, but he has to go first because in the order of God's work, the closest relative has to, are you ready? Be the man who redeems the lost son or the lost brother or the lost father. If he will redeem you, then good. I got news for you. I don't like that part of this story because I cannot imagine if I'm Boaz letting the next guy get in front of the line with me. Brenda and I were dating, and I was reading through Ruth, and I knew then that I was in love with her, and I wanted to marry her, but I remember reading this section of Ruth, and I got to this attitude of Boaz, oh, I would love to marry you. But if there's someone better for you, then I'll let him. I did not want to say that. I didn't want anybody else getting in front of me with regard to Brenda. I mean, no, I'm fighting off those guys, right? 
Y'all can appreciate that. No, I want to be first. Not Boaz. He wants to honor God in the dark. She's come to him with an offer, and he will not accept it until he's done the business in the day to do what's right. Well, as it turns out, he fills her up with grain. She goes home, and that next morning, she tells the story, and Naomi goes, this man will not rest until he takes care of this business. Another example of Boaz being a great man is he attended God's business immediately, and that's what he did. Well, as it turns out, the story is amazing. I told you I'll get out of here quick. But here's what it ends up happening. They marry. The other guy who's concerned about his own inheritance says no. Right in the city square, right in front of all the town leaders, he declines. You know the judgment that fell on him? He was concerned about his lineage and his inheritance. Nobody knows his name. The very thing he concerned himself the most about, he missed being in this story because he was selfish. Boaz was gracious. And we read about him, and today we're still talking about him. God has arranged this book in such a way that he took death and he took life. And a baby is born, and all the women got together, and the choir sang, May he be as good, better than seven sons to you. And they put that baby in Naomi's lap. As it turns out, Ruth was the surrogate for the promise that God had made to Abraham that died in Elimelech's life. And now Naomi gets the baby, and God has redeemed his promises. And then we get a genealogy, and the last name in the book is David. And then Matthew takes this very section at the end of Ruth, and he transports it over into his book called the Gospel of Matthew and the genealogy of Jesus, there's a section straight out of the book of Ruth. In other words, as I said at the beginning, this story is a turning point in the salvation history of God, but there's another part of the story that I promise is the last thing I'm going to say before I pray. Boaz is known as a kinsman redeemer, Goel. He will save us from our death. He will save us from the, 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 the hopelessness. He is our relative. He will save us. And suddenly we realize, if we can go this way, that he is a prefiguring of Jesus Christ. From death of sin, in walks into our story, Jesus came to save sinners. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew chapter 1. And he then brings us into life. If you're looking at the story and you're recognizing, man, there's some real life that comes out of this book, I want you to know, most importantly, there is a real life of faith that comes to you in Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if life has beaten you up and sin has got you captured, like my friend Franklin, it's all about death and guilt and shame. Come to Christ. Trust the Savior who will redeem you, who will save you from your sins and give you the most unbelievable life, eternal and one where people know your name. You know, as it turns out, Ruth fell on the ground. Why have I found favor that you've noted me and paid attention to me for I am a foreigner? I would offer you the same prayer. You can look in, in the story of your own life and look at God and say, why have I found favor that you would pay attention to me, that you would answer my prayer because I'm a sinner? I'm unworthy. Well, no one's worthy. He's gracious. In the same way that Boaz was not only taking care of a meal, but protecting and providing, God will do those things for you. The last thing 
is what an amazing thing it does. In the words of Vince Lombardi, there are 70 plays in a game. Only four of them are going to be scoring plays. You don't know when those four plays are going to take place. So how do you treat those other 66? All of them are important because you never know. Everything is filled with significance. Well, I'm not talking football. I'm actually talking life. Every meeting is significant. Every day is significant. You know why? Because you don't know what God is doing, but you can trust him. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for this story. Thank you for the turning point in history. Thank you for writing this one down so we could look at it. Father, we rejoice to know that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this precursor called Boaz, this Goel, this kinsman redeemer. Father, we have him in Jesus. I thank you for the men and women in this room, these families, visitors, guests, and friends. Father, it's not an accident. They didn't just happen as if it were fate. You've brought them into this moment so they could hear from you. And I pray, Father, that you would raise up in them the desire to trust you, to come to faith in Christ if they don't know him, or to trust you with their life about their future, the way they treat others. Father, would you redeem us from our culture and make us the people of God? Fresh, and we thank you in the name of Christ we pray.